that the Lord delights to show favor to the weak. And to that end, I admitted that I was going to cheer for the underdog in the football game. And, um, but I had a couple of pastoral calls to make after church, and I went right to the hospital, and so I missed the beginning of the game. And as I walked out of the hospital, I got a text from my wife, who was sitting with her parents and my parents over at uh, Steeler Central, and the text said, 21 nothing, you're so excommunicated. So imagine my great delight when this happened later that week. I didn't know that after 10 years, the government just reissues a license plate for your car. I guess the paint wears off and they change the number. So Hannah, do you have that picture that I took? (laughs) The first three letters, if you can't see it, are J-A-G. My wife's minivan is now a Jaguar's minivan (laughs) by government decree. So anyway, last week, the Lord delights to show favor to the weak, and and I'm going to transition and talk about another group of weak uh, individuals or underdogs, and that is the unborn. And today is the National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Back in 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a decree that January 22nd, or the Sunday closest to that Sunday, would be this National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. When he did that, the Roe versus Wade decision was already 11 years old, and um, many presidents have followed suit and have also recognized this Sunday. And I was doing a little research on it and was sort of staggered by some numbers. I came across the number of our population of the United States of America to be somewhere around 325 million people. What I didn't realize is that since Roe versus Wade, there have been over 57 million terminated pregnancies. That's one-sixth of our current population. Let that number sink in. One-sixth of our current population didn't make it to delivery. That's a staggering thought, and it's humbling. And um, I was pleased to hear um, our president speak after the March to Life happened on, the, on Thursday, you know, people go to Washington and they, they march uh, to try and overturn Roe versus Wade. And the president came out very definitively uh, and changed his stance from many years ago and, and is on the side of, of the life movement. And I was really grateful to hear that. And I want to say this morning that this is not a political sermon at all. In fact, it's a theological one, and it's one that as a man under authority in, in the Anglican Church in North America, I am expected to uphold this understanding of God as a God of life. In fact, let me read to you just one canon from the, the whole provincial canons. The canons are the rules by which the church orders itself. And for the entire province, the Anglican Church in North America, Canon 8, Section 3 says this, God, not man, is the creator of human life. The unjustified taking of life is sinful. Therefore, all members and clergy are called to promote and respect the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death. That's written right into the the very founding documents of our entire province. It is a theological statement. It is about God more so than it is about party politics or any of that stuff that we see. And if you really think about it, the lobby for the Roe versus Wade side was very wise to call it pro-choice. You know, if one is called pro-life, the obvious antonym would be pro-death, but no one wants to be on that side, and, or pro-abortion. Nobody wants to be on that side. We want to be pro-choice. I like choice. I want to make choices. I want freedom to choose for myself what is best. But I think a more accurate description would be 
pro-self because it puts the self over the needs of others, in particular the child. So um, I, I'm reading this novel right now. It's the second in a series. It's a huge novel by Ken Follett. It, the first one is called Pillars of the Earth. I'm reading the second one, which is called World Without End. And it paints a picture of um, common peasant life in the 1300s in England. And it took a turn, literally last week as I was reading it, my, the, the storyline took a major turn of one of the main characters, a woman named Karis, whose name actually means grace, but um, she found herself pregnant and decided that she didn't want to be pregnant. She didn't want to be a mother. She didn't want to deal with the self-sacrifice involved in raising a child. And so she goes to the apothecary and gets some nasty mixture and drinks it, and, and it, it causes the result she wanted. And this was her reasoning for it. Keep in mind, this is all fiction, but the, the words that the author put into her mouth are so telling and accurate. She said, I don't want to spend my life as a slave to anyone, even if it's my own child. Pro-self, the idea of it's, it's inconvenient for me to have to raise someone else, to have to invest in another person, to have to you know, be uncomfortable for the nine months, a number of other reasons. Now, I, I want to say that abortion is just one manifestation of selfishness. And all of us are selfish. And all of us have to wrestle with Jesus's real words that if you want to save your life, you actually do so by losing it, by giving up self-rights and choosing to lay that down. Then the, then the true life comes in for you. But if you insist on your rights, your way, yourself, he says you will lose your life. That's not the way to keep it. You actually end up losing it. And if you lay your life down and come to the Lord, the life that he gives you is so much better than whatever you would get yourself. And there's all this blessing that comes with it. So my main point this morning is this. True life is in Christ. Now I could say, and I think accurately, and I could make a biblical argument that God is pro-life. I could put a political spin on it, but I want to I take it further than that. I don't want to say that God is just in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. I want to say that there is a kind of life that most people don't understand. The kind of life that is different than typical human, breathe in, breathe out, physical, mortal life. But there is a true life, and it is in Christ. Now, before I go there, I just want to say a personal word, a pastoral word to anyone in here who might have personal experience with this issue, that you might have been involved in it in some way, whether you're the, the father who convinced your partner or whatever. I want you to hear this. There is forgiveness in Christ, and there is healing, and even redemption, where he can work a good thing out of a bad thing. So I want you to hear that. Now, I want to jump into this um, text I've chosen, and I'm going to look at it under, under two parts. So I'm saying that true life is in Christ. So the first part is life is in Christ, life in Christ. And the second part is what is this true life? What makes it different than the ordinary life? So it'd be helpful if you had a Bible. We're in John 11, the page is 897 in a pew Bible. I'm going to point out a couple of verses in here, walk through the text, and then draw some conclusions from it. I chose this text today. Um, it's not in the lectionary. I jumped off the lectionary because it was National Sanctity of Life Sunday. I chose the text because in it, Jesus explicitly says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He specifically, explicitly says that. I am the resurrection and the life. And if you know anything about John's gospel, you might be aware that there are seven I am statements in there. I've talked about it before. I am is the name that Yahweh, it, Yahweh actually in Hebrew means I am. It is the verb to be. And he said to Moses, my name is I am, existence, being, life even. And Jesus said seven times in John's gospel, I am something. And he fills in that blank. But in doing so, he's claiming oneness with God. He's claiming to be God. And that's why they crucified him. It was very clear. Jesus thought he was God because he was God. And he says these I am statements. And each one, I didn't realize this though, each one is explicitly connected to life. My point here is that life is in Christ. And so um, let me jump through them. Back in chapter 6, 635, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Now you go, that's light. What's that have to do with life? But then if you read a little further, he says, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I am the door. And he's talking about the door to the gate to go into a sheep pen. And he says, the thief climbs in another way. doesn't go through the door. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Down in uh, verse 11 of chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. There it is. He's giving up his life so the sheep can have life. Um, the, our, I'll come back to our text today. The, the, the uh, fifth one is... 1125, but jumping to chapter 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the only one that's not as explicit, but is obvious, is John 15, 1, where he says, I'm the true vine. And he makes the point that a branch cannot do anything apart from the vine. It's only good to be gathered up and burned because there's no life in it. It dries out and dies. So a vine is the source of life for the branches. It's connected to the earth. And John makes this super clear in chapter 20 when he says, these whole signs, all the things that Jesus did, they were written down for you that you might believe that he is the son of God and by believing have life in his name. The whole gospel, I mean, the life is probably the central word of John's gospel. Uh, again, life is in Christ. So now let's look at um, verse 17. This is where Martha, the sister of Mary and Lazarus, interacts with Jesus. In verse 17, it says, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Okay, obviously we're, we're jumping into a story midstream here. It'd be helpful to read the whole thing, but Lazarus, who lived in Bethany, which is like a stone's throw from Jerusalem, very well-loved family, connected to many of the Jews. Jesus was good friends with them. He often stayed at their house. There are a number of interactions between uh, Martha and Mary and Jesus. And so when Lazarus gets terminally ill, they send word to Jesus who's not far from there. And they say, your friend Lazarus is sick, come. And the, the narrative tells us that he stayed where he was two more days. He delayed, he hung back. And then when he gets there, in verse 17, we hear that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Now, the number four is important here because one, as Martha will tell later in the narrative, Lord, don't take that stone away. There'll be an odor because his body's actually decaying. There's no question about whether or not he's really dead. You know, like he's not mostly dead. He's totally dead. <laughs> you know, the Princess Bride reference, not mostly that he's totally dead. And the Jews, now we can't back this anyway, it's not in the scriptures, but the Jews had a pretty widespread belief that a body, when a person died, the soul stayed with the body for three days and then it ascended. 
or whenever, went to Sheol. They had a really underdeveloped view of what happens after death that we get a lot more information about in the New Testament. But by waiting until four days in the tomb, Jesus has set up an amazing scenario. And you really need to read the whole narrative. I'm not going to go into what happens when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, but the graphic image is just so powerful. In fact, it was so graphic and powerful that not only were Jesus's enemies trying to put Jesus to death, they actually tried to put Lazarus to death as well because so many people were believing in Jesus because there was a whole crowd when he did this. Four, no, nobody comes back to life after four days. This was crazy. So what happens here is Martha in verse 21 very tactfully gives Jesus a complaint and in the same sentence issues deep faith in him. She says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So in other words, why didn't you come when I called? But the reason I'm upset is because I know in you is the power to stop this. You could have healed him from this sickness and stopped him from dying. Well, Jesus has in mind that he's going to do something even bigger than that, more impressive than that. And he knew this, and he said this to the disciples, that Lazarus has fallen asleep, meaning he's died, and I go to wake him up. So he didn't decide once he got here what he was going to do. He, he knew he was going to do this, and he was using it as an opportunity to draw Martha out and teach her something really important. In verse 23, he does something rare. If you know Jesus in these Gospels, he almost always answers a question with a question. Very rarely does he ask or make a direct statement, and here he does. Instead of asking some rhetorical question to get her thinking about things, he simply says, your brother will rise again, in verse 23. Direct statement. Now, it is a leading statement because it raises the issue of resurrection up, and Martha did believe with many of the Jews that there was a resurrection, and she says so. Yes, Lord, I believe that on the last day, he will be raised up, he will be resurrected. And so she's professing faith there, but Jesus is about to use her brother as an object lesson to teach this point. In me is life. I am, a, I am the source of life. It's not derivative. I don't have to get it from somewhere else. In Jesus is life because Jesus is God. So he is able to say, Lazarus, come out, and immediately Lazarus is alive and walks out of that tomb wrapped up in the mummy clothes. It, it's an object lesson to teach an important point to Martha, to Mary, to the, all the crowds, and to us. In Christ is life. He's the God of life. Now, I've said that it's, it's a true kind of life. True life is in Christ. What makes it true? What makes it different? Verse 26 says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, die, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Well, clearly, Christians and non-Christians alike die. Mortality is where we're all headed until Christ comes. I mean, if he comes before that time, then we were spared that. But if he doesn't come in your, let's say, on a good 90 years, but maybe a lot less, who knows? We are dying physically. But so what does he mean? If you believe in me, you never die. He's talking about something totally different. He's talking about a kind of life that is different than the mortal life everyone else has. William Barclay, a scholar who wrote a New Testament commentary series that I own, uh, said in here, he said um, about that verse, he said, not even a lifetime's thinking will reveal the full meaning of that statement. You and I could spend our entire lives trying to understand what this new life is and still be gaining new insights into it because of how amazing it is. So this true life is in Christ. Now, this true life is 
more than physical, clearly, because it transcends death. You don't die from this. When you have this kind of life, you can't die. It's a regenerated spirit. A true life is a person is dead and they've become born again. Their spirit is made alive in Christ. They're born twice. They have a physical birth and then they have a spiritual birth. This true life replaces selfishness with joy, which is an interesting thing to think about because even as I said, the, the issue of abortion is really one of selfishness and it's just one, one type of selfishness and we all have this idea that my way is the best way for me. And Jesus' teaching is that when you lay that down, my life will come into you and you will have joy, a complete kind of joy, a joy that surprisingly exceeds any time you've gotten your own way. So I don't know what your selfish issue is. I have one, you've got, we all have them. But when I pursue my selfish way and I actually get what I thought I wanted, it never has the same effect as when I die to myself and I make the Lord's way my way, a different kind of joy, a different kind of experience is there. That's the true life I'm talking about. True life is in Christ. Now, let me give you an example of somebody, and this is a dramatic conversion story um, that I read about this week. Um, not every conversion story is dramatic. Not every murderer turns to a Christian. But when selfish people lay down their self, repent, and turn to the Lord, a similar thing happens. But this happened in 1918 in Tokyo. A criminal, named, a Japanese criminal named Tokichi Ishii was arrested for brutal crimes against men, women, and children. He was a, a brutal murderer. Anyone who got in his way, he just took him out. He didn't seem to care. had no respect for life whatsoever. And he was a hardened type of criminal. He was one of those guys the guards just really didn't like. In fact, he got in a fight with some of the guards, and they put him into, like, torture to make him repent and apologize, and he just refused to. He was like the bad version of the movie Unbroken. Like, he was the criminal that wouldn't be broken. So he suffered greatly in prison just because he was so stubborn and hard-hearted and full of meanness and nasty. Two Christian missionaries, two women from Canada came there to that prison to tell the prisoners about Jesus. And he was nasty to them and they couldn't talk to him. And so they just decided, all right, well, we'll leave him with a New Testament Bible with the gospels. They left him a New Testament Bible. And when he calmed down and started reading it, he couldn't stop. He started reading all the way through the, the New Testament. And he got to the account of Jesus' own execution. And when he came to the words where Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, he was converted on the spot. He was broken. He was, he was softened. His heart was changed. And he realized, how is it that this Jesus who is innocent and a good man could actually not only surrender his life, but then pray for those who were taking it from him? And in his own words, he said, I stopped. I was stabbed to the heart. Shall I call it the love of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I don't know what to call it. I only know that I believed and my hardness of heart was changed. He was in a six foot by nine foot cell until his execution. And he described his experience in there of, of being full of joy and happiness because Christ was there with him in this new life. He went to the gallows with a smile on his face, joy in his heart, and was a totally different man. Now here's the amazing thing about this true kind of life is that it transcends death. It transcends physical death. And as I've told you, one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard said, and I agree with him, he believed that in this life you could get this new kind of life and have a relationship with Christ that is so powerful, so intimate, and so real that when your physical death happens, you won't have realized it happened you'll look back there and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, and you're into a new life with him because he will take you through it. 
And that's what this man experienced, and that's what everyone who comes to the Lord experiences. True life is in Christ. Now, a couple of application points. One, the invitation here is to surrender self to Christ. Insisting on self is a form of death. And repenting of self leads to that life. So if you've never done that, I encourage you to do it, to say, I surrender. I want your life in me, Christ. I now serve you. Invite him into your life. If you've done it, but you're holding on to some selfish thing that is actually sucking life out of you, turn that over and go, I'm already a Christian, Lord. I I know you. I'm sorry about this. Here, I give this selfish thing to you. I want your will, not mine. And you will start to get freedom. You'll start to get a kind of joy. It will restore to you the joy of your salvation. A third, uh, an- another application, so that's the surrender. Another one is, like William Barclay said, it would be really helpful to spend some time looking at this verse, verse 25. What is this kind of life that Jesus is offering? What does it look like? What can I expect? What else does the Bible say about this promise? And spend a lot of time, a lifetime even, reflecting on that. And then back to the um, issue of sanctity of human life. I want to encourage you to pray for the unborn, I want to encourage you to speak out even when it's uncomfortable. I don't like having to talk about this. I'm embarrassed for our country. I think it's a scandal. I think it's a huge number of lives lost. I know, I know people are, it's just a, it's a, an uncomfortable topic. At a national level, we should really try to overturn Roe versus Wade in whatever way is the best way to go about that. And we can debate that on the side and now we're into politics, but I think we need to ask God to help overturn that. Second thing is, on a local level, I want to encourage you to support First Coast Women's Services. That's a Jacksonville-wide crisis pregnancy center that is, that is upholding life. They provide counseling for both the man and the woman. They provide um, all sorts of resources for out, throughout pregnancy. And even they provide healing and counseling for those who've gone through with an abortion. And so God is using that ministry in a mighty way. Our church has been supporting First Coast Women's Services for as long as I've been here and probably longer. And I hope we'll continue to do so. Um, you can hear more about it in the back. There's actually a little uh, table back there with a, a trifold board that has pictures of what their, their Clay County Center looks like and some information about it. It's on, the, it's on the corner of College and Old Jennings Road over in Middleburg. So it's not far from here. So if you or someone you know needs their advice or their services, that's where it is. They're very discreet and they do a good job of presenting not only an alternative, but also the good news. The, the gospel, as well as, you know, pregnancy services and stuff. And then on a personal level, I want to encourage you to extend grace to people wherever they are. I, I think a lot of damage has been done by the church and by Christians being aggressive, being um, right, feeling like we're right. And I think we're dealing with hard hearts, and only the Lord can soften a heart. So I think we go with grace as a person who our, ourself is, is selfish at times and was self-centered until Christ met us. So we want to lead off with grace and kindness and be gentle. But I think it's important for us to um, reach out to those who might be in a difficult situation and treat them as entire persons and not some kind of political idea or whatever it might be. So we're going to need God's help for this. So I want to, I want to lift this up and pray that he would help us with this situation. So would you please join me? Oh, Lord, I cry out on behalf of our nation that you would have mercy on us. I pray that you would begin softening hearts from the bottom up and from the top down. I pray for our Supreme Court justices. 
I pray for those who are lobbying hard to keep Roe versus Wade in place. And I ask you to intercede. Overturn it, Lord. Give wisdom to those who understand the value of life. Help us to know what is the best course of action. I pray, Lord, against anyone who would be aggressive or violent. I ask that you would teach us grace. Teach us personally about our selfishness and about how grace-filled you are. Lord, bring healing to those who've been wounded through abortion. I pray that you'd restore and heal and forgive. I pray, Lord, for your mercy.